0: Hello and welcome to the HPP Podcast. This is the HPP Podcast Editor, Arden Castle, and each week we explore a new topic related to the Health Promotion Practice Journal. Whether it's demystifying publishing, breaking down a new article, or discussing public health related topics with our editorial board members, we hope you enjoy each week's exploration into health promotion practice.
1: Hello, and welcome to the HPP podcast. I am Dr. LaConte Dill, a Black feminist scholar, artist, and educator, member of the Health Promotion Practice Editorial Board, and I join Dr. Shanae Birch. Hey, Shanae. Hi. And Dr. Ryan Petaway as co-associate editors of the new-ish section, Poetry for the Public's Health. These poems all exist in front of a paywall as supplements available to all to read and enjoy. Poets have been invited to record their poems to offer a more sonic creative encounter and we'll celebrate the publishing of such poems with episodes such as this one along the way. Today, I'm so excited to be joined by Dr. Dudu Ndlovu featured in our November, 2022 issue. Before we get started, I'm gonna ask our guests to introduce themselves and have them share where they are calling in from today. Dudu?
2: Hello, and thank you so much for having me here for this conversation. I am calling from Johannesburg, South Africa, and I'm a migration scholar and poet, yeah, based in South Africa.
1: Awesome. Thank you for joining us. So we're going to get started. So our section is titled Poetry for the Public's Health. What does that mean to you? So I think I think of health as
2: well-being. And for me, as a as a Black woman and within educational institutions, the health has been more than the embodied feeling of being well, but also mental well-being, emotional well-being, in the different spaces that I found myself in. First as a graduate student, and then also as an early career researcher. So health is about finding myself feeling at home, which hasn't always been that I find myself feeling at home in the different spaces. Yeah, so that's that's health for me. Health is finding myself in a space that recognizes all of who I am, welcomes all of who I am, hears all of what I say, and sees all of me in all the different facets of who I am.
0: Thank you so much, Dudu. As even in your introduction, it's very clear that, you know, you, you too are dancing across the margins of your different disciplines as that of a poet and a migration scholar and i i we wonder if you could share more about how you came to this work and holding those identities
2: so my story is is very personal <laughs> i don't know how personal i can get with this but i didn't have a positive experience with poetry in school so like actually my my memory of poetry in high school is one where the teacher actually scolded me so poetry wasn't something that i'd say i enjoyed in school but i found myself writing poems and i never i never really thought much about it and then when i was doing my phd and i I had a really interesting time as a black woman working with, and in my research for my PhD, I worked mostly with men who were older than me. And I found that in that space, I didn't really have the authority that within the university when we were, you know, like research methods course talks about you as the researcher having power and working, and I was working with, yes, marginalized groups, migrants, most of whom were not documented, but they were men. And, and that idea of me being a researcher who was powerful, didn't really, like it wasn't, that wasn't the case always. Yes, I held power in that I had the backing of an educational institution and I had come in as a researcher. But the men that I was interviewing were older than me and and them being men. And also I was an insider as well as researching my own community. I found that I wasn't as powerful within the research space. And so I wasn't as powerful when I was interviewing people, but I had all this power when I was now writing because I was going to be writing for an academic audience I didn't really have any ethical, I mean, no one would have found anything wrong with me writing and everyone else reading and the people that I was interviewing never having to engage with what I was writing. So I had this discomfort, I had this challenge about I've interviewed people, I'm going to write about them. They're not going to engage with what I'm going to write about. And just when I was, I had done like enough field work to start writing, my dad passed on. And my dad had been really, in, I mean, actually, my dad forced me to go to university because I didn't get my first choice. And so I wasn't interested. Then at, at 18, I was like, I'm not doing this because I didn't get my first choice program. And so he forced me to go to university. And was very pivotal in my educational journey. And so he he passed on just when I was starting to write. And I in in a in a not weird way, but I think everyone around me at that point was like, no, you can take a break from your PhD, you know, your your mourning, your dad's passing. But for me, I wanted to honor him by making sure I finish. And so for me, continuing to write my PhD was really important at that point. But also at that point, I was writing poetry about my dad and somehow the poetry spilled over into what I was writing about. And in poetry, I found space to express the discomfort that I had been carrying about writing in a genre and the language that the people I was writing about wouldn't be able to engage with. And so that's how I came to including poetry in my work and using poetry in my research work. It was really something I stumbled on. I had this discomfort I had been carrying and this personal space of me writing about my dad that came together and poetry then became a response. I think if I would use the artist's way, it talks about synchronicity. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's what happened at that point for me. Yeah.
1: Thank you so much for your vulnerability, for sharing. You kind of concisely talked about this rich, rich journey. And, you know, I think to speak for Sinead, but also I, that out of pain, out of the wounds. Like we really search to find some healing, like to find a balm, to find a map towards, to make meaning. Right. And so you talked about, I mean, your dad being such an inspiration. You also talked about the disconnect sometimes in the classroom, I feel like being inspiration. Were there other poets or poems that you read or that you heard and you went like, oh, this also inspires me? And I think I would also add not just poems or poets, but like as Black people, it might be songs, which are also poetry, or it might be theater, which also has so much poetry. So was there any other art or artists that you felt like oh this is inspiring me this is informing my work or I want to study them more I want to like adapt what they're doing or counter what they're doing
2: so <laughs> the poem that actually kind of inspired me to to because when I when I decided to write poems as part of my thesis I actually didn't know that there was this community of people that were actually breaking the rules and including poetry in their work it was just something that made sense to me at that point and so I mean there's one poem that I read a long time ago I mean I, I've already said that I, I didn't really have a good experience with poetry at school but Robert Frost's poem The Rod Not Taken I read it in a library book and I copied it onto my journal I think it was in my first year of university and it kind of became like a guiding principle for me. Like I always wanted to take the road, like the road list trodden. So it was kind of like the the thing that gave me the the courage to be like, well, this isn't really recognized, but this is making sense to me. This This is something that I can, go to sleep and not feel guilty. (laughs) Like in doing, like for me, I want to do work that I can stand behind and be like, yeah, I did that. And at that point, writing my thesis in an academic genre wasn't giving me that piece and including poetry was. So that poem gave me the courage to do that. And then I just Googled poetry in research and I found a poem, by Yvonne Sleep, she's a South African poet scholar, and she was writing, it's a, it's an article where she's, she's actually writing about the loss of her son, and so I was like, oh, I can reference this, even if it's just this one journal, I can be like, well, this woman did this, and it's actually a published journal, so I can do this, so... Yeah, at that point, that is one general article that I found. And it gave me courage to be like, okay, I can try this. I can push the boundaries in this way. And at that point, I was like, I'm going to write the traditional thesis. And then I'm going to distill it into poetry. Of which now I am like, do we actually need to write the traditional thesis?
1: Exactly. Or we need to write what makes (laughs) sense. Right?
2: right. We need to write. I mean, and then for me, it's who am I writing for? I mean, at, at that point, yes, I needed to get the PhD. I mean, I kind of reasoned that, well, I need the academy to recognize me, and then maybe I can continue to push further. Yeah, so, and then I continued to, like, kind of try and find different, and at that point, unfortunately, I don't remember the name, but someone defended a music album as their thesis at one of the universities here in South Africa, which again was like, for me at the back of my mind, okay, you can do this. At least you haven't like, you haven't pushed way too far. You still have a text that they can read. Yeah.
0: That is a, that is incredible and also, I think speaks to what resonated the most in in this part of your storytelling too is the like having something just naturally or innately want to come out of you in this way whether like poetry and then looking up from without from like from within and then outside of yourself to see oh there's a whole community because it can be isolating if you are Moving through the world, believing you are the only one. you know, for myself, it felt so affirming to like, in the process of preparing my own thesis, I graduated this last May or and you know, defended the dissertation and such. But in the process of citing and and celebrating that, that I could cite people that there were new ideas within me, but also something that La knows to that I don't know if you know, but I wrote a play as a part of my thesis. And that was so like new for my advisor. <laughs> it was new for me. I had never written a play, but it was a play with poems. And I think my hope is that in being the folks that did cite, who did include art, that there will be more that follow us because mm-hmm. there is a way, there is a route, there is an example And there should be more. And then speaking of examples, we have your beautiful poem that is in our November 22 issue titled Own My Life Today. And we would love if you could share a few lines of the poem and share more of how this poem came to be.
2: I'll read the first stanza. Let me tell... My story, what I own in this world is the word. It creates, it destroys, it is power. So so this poem, this is actually the main argument of my PhD thesis. But it's also my story. So I think in one way, what this poem does is really show how the the fallacy of objectivity in research, right? Like we are implicated in the work that we do and in what we are writing. So I wrote this poem as the summary of the conclusion of my thesis and also as the main argument of my thesis. So I wrote about memory of violence that has never been acknowledged, that when it happened in the 1980s, the world really turned a blind eye to it. It didn't work for, for the global powers at that point to see what was happening because of the political climate then. I mean, we do know that there are certain things that are just not popular because they don't work for the political climate at that point. So this violence has never been acknowledged. To this day, official acknowledgement of, of the violence that happened in Zimbabwe in the 1980s, which is popularly known as Gukurahundi, And yet, in the early two thousand, when you had what is called the third chimorenga in Zimbabwe, when there was violence and land was being taken violently from white farmers, you had the whole world stop and look at what is happening. And I'm not saying that shouldn't have happened, but that made people whose own pain and trauma had been ignored ask why, you know? And also looking at it, it was white farmers in the 1980s, it was Black people. And so the summary of my thesis is people saying, we want the world to hear from us and to hear our pain, but not just to create their own narrative. Because you know we have universal narratives about, for example, famine in Africa. We have this universal narrative about. Oh, like I remember, I presented at a conference in Croatia. I presented my work, and one of the one of the first comments was like, "Oh yeah, post colonial violence in African countries." Like there's this one narrative about what it is, right? Like, oh, we know there's post-colonial violence and it tends to be along ethnic lines. And yet there are, I mean, each, each story is specific and there's value in the specificity of each story, right? It's not, yes, we might think of it as universal post-colonial Africa, there's been violence in most of the countries, But there are specificities that are important for the people whose story it is, right? And so in as much as this poem, the iteration in the journal, the abstract that I write is more personal, which I think, again, is the value of art in research, that it creates the space for multiple Narratives, but those multiple narratives are not generalizing and creating this one story.
1: So that's the poem that's in HPP. Thank you so much for sharing a brief excerpt of your poems. We think it's really important for our readers, our learners to hear from the poet's tongue. And it's important for me, even as I teach, not only write, but also teach poetry. So I also have my students like find the poet if you can, the original poet and, and, you know, a video clip, audio clip of them reading that. So we feel like this podcast is building the archive, right? A living archive for ourselves and our readers. Thank you for also in your poem, but also in what you just shared for giving us a brief, brief, brief history. And I think it's like you spoke to that, like in a short poem, right? That's like a page you are able to delve into rich histories and able to also charge the reader to do their work, right? Like call them in to, if you are not aware of this, there is some work for you to do, right? I'm giving you a nugget of work, but here's some more work to do. So I would love you to speak about, if you can, More about the work, you know, you have these people at the conference and people in other aspects of your life talking about the post-colonial moment, which we could also argue, like, are we even post, right? But a lot of your work is around decoloniality, decolonization, what that means on the continent of Africa, what that means in your work between specifically like Zimbabwe, your homeland in South Africa, this home place with it being welcoming and also being Constraining, right? But I know, like, personally, you've been also collaborating with scholars transnationally. So, me being from the States, the group of scholars you've worked with in the UK. So, if you could just talk about that's a lot, (laughs) but if you can just delve in what that work has looked like for you as a scholar and artist.
2: Yeah, I think first off, we need to acknowledge how much work still needs to be done in terms of decolonizing the world, right? And to recognize that in some way, we are complicit in systems of coloniality, right? For example, we're having this conversation in English, which is not my first language. And so I think acknowledging that then helps us to see, What's possible? What are we able to do within our work? In as much as we still remain complicit in certain areas. Yes, we want to decolonize the world. We would love a decolonial world, but in the present moment that we are in, we still remain complicit in so much of coloniality, right? And in my work, so I've said that when I was writing my thesis I really struggled with this idea of, of producing a text that the people I was writing about would not be able to engage with. And poetry gave me the space to present my thesis to the people I had interviewed, the people I had worked with, for them to really meaningfully and critically engage with. And so. Poetry allowed me to create a moment of decolonizing in giving space, in disrupting the researcher gaze, which also tends to be a colonial gaze, right? And then the other thing is when we think about, for example, my location in the Global South, in South Africa, access to spaces to do work, it's all, for African-based researchers, we almost tend to be constricted to, you need to do work where you are, right? Whereas people from the global north, like I was shocked at the recent European conference on African studies, which in itself, the fact that we still have a European conference on African studies <laughs> is quite interesting. <laughs> when I told someone that I was going to this conference, there was like, Oh, are you creating more borders, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but yeah, at this conference, I found, like I met PhD students from the global north who still feel that they were so interested in studying Zimbabwe, studying South Africa. And I'm like, this is really settling. <laughs> right so we still like in so many ways that's still continuing and we know and even I mean... some
1: some fields in the global north they're expected or mandated oh you must go to another country right you know like we're on the continent is this this constraining of you must stay where you are in some fields in the global north it's like you must go elsewhere there's no interrogation of where you are and then they even talk about the field, going into the field, right? Even historically yeah. going, quote unquote, native. And then the fact that that's not just historical, it's contemporary, right? It's the present. Very contemporary. Exactly. Very contemporary, yeah.
2: Exactly. So the network that I was able to build, which is mostly in the UK, was because I received a grant from the British Academy And one of the conditions of this grant, because I was an early career researcher based in the global south, was to get a mentor from a UK institution. I'm really thankful for the mentor who was the co PI, because, like, she was very clear about how that was really absurd, right? That I needed, I had already. Sure. like I got this grant because I, I displayed that I was doing work that they wanted to fund and so instead of me being mentored what we then did in the project was for me to create a network and actually work as a partnership not as me going to the UK to learn some research skill that I already had. I think again speaks to this idea of how Coloniality continues in different ways, but there are ways in which we can engage and disrupt within the limited ways. I mean, I needed the funding, so you disrupt within the limited ways. But in my work, I am very much conscious of how my location, of how my gender, and me being a Black woman really influences. Spaces that I'm able to access, and who gets to listen to me. Which, in one way, being able to get into a space and say, I am Dr. Duduzile, allows me that access, right? And then, what am I able to negotiate, and what am I not able to negotiate? But I think we always have to be aware of that, yes, we do not have the kind of explicit colonial agenda still in place, but we are in different ways, get implicated in colonial power dynamics. And so in our work, we always have to be conscious of what we are doing and what it means and how we can disrupt that or what is possible to disrupt. For me, I found, within my PhD work and in different ways. I have another chapter where, during COVID-19, I was asked to write about Zimbabweans in Johannesburg, which, at that point, we were not allowed to go out of our houses. How was I going to write about people that I wasn't actually even engaging with? And in that space, I was able to write a poem about how I didn't want to write about Zimbabweans. And so I think it's always that negotiation of The spaces. So, the other thing I think that's important is recognizing that these spaces are limited and not everyone has access to that space. And so, it's not necessarily like boycotting publishing, but it's how do you engage and, in a way, push the boundaries of that.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for delving into that you talked a lot about disruption, which I also love to talk about. Can you speak, can I follow up this conversation with like who are some of your disruptors? If you want to name them, if they can be named. You were talking about the co-PI, but I'm also thinking about like in country. Have you been able to find comrades? Like what does that look like? Particularly thinking about as an artist scholar or scholar artist. There's
2: actually a consortium of um Oh, no, the, the name just, <laughs> but Professor Heidi Van Ruyen, she's at the HSRC, Human Sciences Research Council here in South Africa. And she's been really at the forefront of advancing using poetry in research here in South Africa. Earlier this year, she actually funded workshops in three provinces for faculty and graduate students. An Introduction to Poetic Inquiry, she won a bid to host the Poetic Inquiry Symposium that happens every two years. It was in South Africa last year. And so she she's an amazing human being, but also like really flying high the flag of disrupting research in that way. When you first asked that question, not necessarily in research, but someone I find really inspirational and Interestingly, I haven't I had like I've never been in her class, but I just follow her work. Professor Pumla Gola, she yeah, she's she's an amazing scholar and just an amazing beacon for me here in South Africa. There's so many people and Hannah coming to mind right now. <laughs>
1: That's good. You gave us like even a few names again, not just us, but our listeners again, to either already add to their shelf, or if it's already on the shelf, maybe pick it up and delve further. So thank you for that. So we're coming to the end of our conversation, but before we get there, I want to ask you, what are you currently reading? Particularly as a poet and a scholar, what's at the top of your reading list?
2: So again, I think, going back to, I think I really, in in my work, I really move from the gut out. And so I have been recently reading a lot about contemplative practice, contemplative teaching, and realizing that this is the work I have been doing. This is is how I have been teaching. But also, it so gels with poetic inquiry, with writing poetry with being a poet and I'm also reading a lot more about so like there's a book called Black Academic Voices the South African Experience which has really firsthand experiences of faculty black faculty in South African institutions another book that I'm reading and, and has been like quite inspirational for me is it's about it they've called it being at home and again it's reflections on being within a South African institution which has also made me think a lot more about what it means to be at home yeah and I'm also reading a lot about the embodied experience and thinking about embodiment because I think I think as academic something that I recognized as a graduate student and then when I started teaching was the way in which the university kind of disembodies you like the university is interested in you as a brain who thinks and yet this brain is within a body and there's so much of our knowing that is embodied and so yes
0: that is what I'm reading about. I am, I'm taking notes. <laughs> as someone who is transitioning so closely from the writing or, you know, dissertation process to that of as an educator, or like in a postdoc, and then now um, teaching like my first course this semester, I've been feeling the transition, like the nooks and, and curves of that and have become really enamored I think by what even you describe in your poem of like now that this knowledge has moved from you know your soul or your mind and your spirit to that of an embodied practice and experience right for people who then come into contact with you who meet you to say contemplative pedagogy embodiment like what's the point of knowing all of this if we're not living into it and acting in it and I feel like the public health professionals and scholars listening on the call i think my hope is that they hear your words do and they're like they accept the call or they accept the invitation you end your poem that the poem that's published here in hpp with an acknowledgement of something that you even said here in the in the dialogue you know that this interview is taking place in english so that our listeners you know the subscribers to hpp can understand and it's in your poem right if people go back to your poem you write let me claim the power on my tongue to trace my past, chart my path, define my name, own my life. And just before that, you say, let me use my words, borrow your language so you can hear. And I think in this question that you pose to the readers, will you listen? I think it's natural for Lacante and myself to like, want to answer that question for the readers. Like, yes, we will, <laughs> we will listen to you and so you know I think as we close I'm curious how you'd want readers to listen to you how you'd want them to follow along on your journey how people might be able to follow more of your work where can they find you or where would you like to meet them you know people don't have to be all up in your business to still learn from you but (laughs) how can people follow more of your work
2: I haven't been good in sharing my work, but after this, because I have promised people. <laughs> um, Instagram, I have at Manlo DS and Twitter as well. Although my, my presence on Twitter is a bit, yeah. But also on LinkedIn, my name and surname, and you should be able to find me on LinkedIn. Yeah. And
0: we can include those, of course, in the show notes. I'm curious if there is something you most want readers to, or listeners to remember about this conversation.
2: I think what I would like to leave with everyone is that we have this opportunity and we can do good work. And good work looks different for everyone I think each individual has their path and we all have an opportunity to do good work I mean we've talked about how we engage with this post-colonial in quotes, world and we each have to choose how we engage with it and what is the legacy that we leave behind to be remembered by
1: Thank you. That's so precious, a way to conclude at least this conversation. More to come with you as a a co-disruptor. To our listeners, we'd like to thank you for listening to this conversation. To find out more information, check out our health promotion practice website. Thank you, thank you, thank you again to our guests, Dr. Dudu Nlovu. Thank you to Arden Castle, our podcast editor, for editing this episode. We are the guest hosts, for this episode, Dr. Lacante Dill and Shanae Birch. We hope you enjoy this conversation. We'll be back soon, hopefully in a few weeks, with more episodes of the HPP podcast. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the HPP Podcast. If you enjoyed this content, let us know by tagging us or responding to our promotions on Twitter and LinkedIn. You can also find out more about the Health Promotion Practice Journal from Sage or Sophie's websites. All of these links can be found on the podcast website at anchor.fm forward slash health promotion practice. Take care and have a great day.